0: Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, our hosts welcome back to the show long-term founding host Lewis Goldberg and friend of the show Chris Crane. Lewis makes his triumphant return to the podcast booth to tease some exciting new content coming to the green rush for our listeners. We also took some time to chat with Chris about his history within the industry, how the legal marijuana space has evolved over the last decade, and what he anticipates will come next for the growing cannabis marketplace. Chris also talks about his future at Forefront and what he has planned for his next evolution. So don't sit back, lean forward, and enjoy our conversation with Lewis Goldberg and Chris Crane.
1: Welcome to the Green Rush. While you haven't heard him on the microphone for a while, Lewis Goldberg has still very much been a part of the podcast, just a bit behind the scenes. And I'm thrilled, truly, truly thrilled to have him back. He'll be popping in and out of podcasts, but more importantly, he and a team of us here at KCSA are working some on some exciting new stuff that we'll be rolling out Uh, when we roll it out. (laughs) Uh, But we think it's something special and something that you all will really love. Um, This podcast is also really special today because we have an amazing guest with us. It's someone you know and love. But before we get to that, welcome back, Lewis Goldberg.
2: Well, thank you very much. And Donahoe. And Nick Opich. Um, Yeah. It's really good to be back on the mic. Um, And while I will not be full-time back on camera, so to speak, um, as Ann said, I have been working quietly behind the scenes and Ann, Nick, and Chris, and a whole slew of other people have been thinking about where we are as a podcast, where we want to be, and where we're going to go. So over the next couple few months you're going to see some really interesting changes to the green rush uh, and you'll still have some of the same great things that we've been doing just more interesting and better content Um, and Chris Crane um, who is a close friend of all of us here um, is joining us today uh, to talk a lot about where he has been in the industry where he is and most importantly, where he's going. Um, Chris is one of the most influential people when it comes to the political and advocacy side of the industry. Um, And over the course of his career, morphed from being um, an advocate into an operator and has really had a unique view of the entire history of the progression of cannabis from the gray market to the green market and from purely focused on advocacy to commercialization. And uh, this conversation that we're going to be holding roundtable style should be really one of the more interesting ones that you have listened to and or will listen to. And I guess, uh, why don't we just start jumping into it?
1: Chris, while we all know your story and we had, um, last week on, uh, on the, the green rush podcast, we had a rerun of a really great conversation that you had, um, with Ben Larson, but, um, can you just give us a quick overview of your history and, um, and your life in cannabis?
3: Sure. Um, yeah, well, first off, awesome to be here. Um, awesome to be back with you guys. It's been a while since, uh, since I did a green rush, so it feels good. Um, so yeah, quick history. Um, you know, I've been in cannabis for my entire career and uh, even a bit before it. So it was a, a student activist with uh, Normal and then one of the first uh, ever chapters of Students for Sensible Drug Policy um, at American University in the late 90s. Uh, you know, it's an issue that I've thought a lot about, cared a lot about from a fairly young age. And you know, my father was a a medical cannabis patient in the '80s, um, back you know before medical cannabis was legal in any form, um, and it really helped him in the last few years of his life, and that was something that kind of stuck with me from a fairly young age. I mean, I saw it at you know seven, eight years old, my father finding relief from from what I knew as joints at that age. Um, I didn't really know know anything other than that. Um, but I knew that you know, joints helped him when when he was particularly sick. Um, and uh, you know went on to become an activist in college, as I mentioned. Uh, from there, uh, went to work at Normal as the associate director of the national organization. Uh, spent six years at Normal in DC, um, then spent four years as the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, something I was really proud of, and still stay involved with the organization today. Um, and then got into the industry in, it was late 2009. So it was, I mean, barely an industry to get into at that point. But uh, you know, Steve D'Angelo from Harborside Health Center had been one of uh, one of my larger donors when I was uh, running SSDP. Harborside was one of our you know most consistent and, and larger donors at the nonprofit. And Steve was starting up a new consulting company uh, that was uh, designed to help people start harborside model type dispensaries. Um, and so I moved from DC after 13 years, went out to California, uh, worked with Steve D'Angelo and some of the other luminaries of the early Northern California medical cannabis scene, folks like James Anthony and Robert Jacob from, from peace and medicine, uh, Eric Pearson from spark. Um, I mean, just a really great crew. Um, but, you uh, know, unfortunately we were a little bit ahead of our time, uh, with that, the industry was not quite ready for what we were trying to do yet. And, um, Things fell apart after about a year and a half. um, And that actually wound up being, for me personally, um, something that launched... That was really the event that launched what became Forefront. Um, So I I took a lot of what I learned at that consulting firm, uh, was able to secure some investment from uh, John Sperling, who was the founder of the University of Phoenix and had been really one of the biggest philanthropic supporters of marijuana policy reform for the past few decades. Um, And we bought some of that initial intellectual property from Canby, the the, the failed company, and um, repurposed it, started a new consulting company called Forefront Advisors. with some companies that wound up some, some early, early operators, some of whom wound up becoming, you know, uh, some of the bigger companies in the space today, some of whom were, you know, were small then and still are um, kind of ran the gamut. And that grew you know over the years into Forefront Ventures, which were now a multi-state operator uh, operating across the United States and, uh, you know, all, all across the vertical. And um, it's been, a, you know, that was almost 11 years ago. So it's been been kind of a wild ride.
4: Yeah, and I want to I want to stick uh, you know, on on your history within the industry. I think, you know, you're you're one of our favorite guests to have on the Green Rush just because you have such a wealth of knowledge from your time on the advocacy side. But, you know, I'm wondering, how did how did you come to the decision to to jump into the industry from the advocacy side? Was it like you just had like the the light switch turn on and you're like, "Now I'm ready for it?" Or was it something that you th- kind of had planned for a while? Well, uh, I didn't have it planned
3: because there, I mean, there was nothing to really, there there wasn't really an industry industry to plan around (laughs) at that time. Um, You know, at at that point, the industry to me in 2009 was Harborside Health Center, Peace and Medicine, Berkeley Patients Group, but LAPCG, some of these really early model dispensaries that were, I mean, really engaging in an act of civil disobedience. Back then, I mean, none of these stores were licensed by the state of California. Um, California didn't have state license. They had, California didn't get state licensing until just a few years ago. Um, uh, you know, they, they had a memo from the California attorney general um, that 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 outlined how to operate as a collective. Um, and that was really it. And then and, you know, and then you had places, like, you know, Harborside became one of the first in the country that operated with a with a, a permit from a city government. So I always looked at the industry and still do to a large degree as an extension of the advocacy movement, Um, right? I saw going through places like Harborside that, that nobody could go through a Harborside Health Center or a Berkeley patients group and walk away from that feeling like that should be illegal or I'm not okay with this being in my community. And that, you know, it really occurred to me then that, This was doing as much to help move the conversation forward and the policy forward as the work that I'd been doing in D.C. Because up until these early model dispensaries, there was there was nothing that we could point to to counteract or counter the stereotypes that that most of us had driven into our heads around what cannabis distribution looks like. And right? I think for most people who particularly for folks of my generation who grew up in the 80s and you know the dare programs and the just say no era, you know, you thought about about a marijuana deal as, you know, a shady street corner drug deal, right? A schoolyard pusher, uh, a couple of burnouts in their parents' basement, right? Like these stereotypes that were never actually true. Um, I mean, you know, most people have, most people had a dealer or still in many places in the country do. I had a dealer that you, you know, usually you like your dealer, you go and hang out with your dealer when they, you know, you go to their house, they come to your house, you smoke a joint with them, you hang out, you buy your weed, right? So like even these stereotypes weren't really true, but even that, right, that's not how typical commerce works. Like if I want to go out and buy a six pack for the night, I don't feel obliged to hang out at a liquor store and drink a beer with the guy who's selling it to me before (laughs) I leave. Right? Like, so it still was, it was, it was communal and it was something fun about it. Right. But it's not the way that most people think about how commerce works in general. And it really occurred to me that what was going on was giving people a view of what a post prohibition world could and would look like. And that if we could just show them that and and show them that there was nothing to be scared of right and and show them the really the vision of uh of what the other side of this looks like, because if you can't, if you can't picture the alternative to what you've known for your entire life, it's very hard for you to vote uh, and support changing the policy. And so for me, that was what this was all about. And it occurred to me that, Hey, look, this is, this is going to advance the advocacy goals that I've been working on my entire career. Uh, We're going to bring people into the issue that have never been involved in this before. Um, Right. People who are getting involved because they see a financial incentive, right? These are people that had never, donated to normal or MPP or the drug policy alliance before, but now have a financial incentive to see laws change because it opens up markets. Um, right. And a lot of those people have money, they have access, they have political access, business world access that none of us had in the policy movement. Um, and that, and that, that this was, this was going to be what, Helps change the laws, um, so that was that was always my motivation. It still is, um, and I think we've seen that largely play out. Um, uh, you know, it's very different today, but but the, the 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 basic premise still you know still holds very much true to me.
2: So you were at the birth of the first handful of these dispensaries. And you know, I would say we are not at full maturity by any stretch of the imagination. No, of the we're industry, like a tween. Probably- <laughs> yeah, I'd say that right, like a twelve-year-old. Right, you know, Ugh, both-
1: We're so annoying.
2: <laughs> um, but if you look at those those tween companies. These are companies that are worth now billions of dollars, right? Curaleaf is a, you know, $8 billion company. Tilray is a multi-billion dollar company. You look at Cresco, you look at GTI. These are companies that have dozens, if you know, if not approaching a hundred stores. And if you go back to where you were at that moment of childbirth of the industry and look at where you are today, how do you feel about it? Are these companies... Um, holding true to that advocacy ethic or have they, have they strayed a field? I mean, w- what do you see when you see what you see?
3: It's a great question. And I think it's a, it's a really mixed answer, right? I mean, I, I don't think you can cast a wide net and, and, and say, you know, this applies to every large cannabis company in the space, right? Some are much better than others. Um, but so uh, I'll start with this the fact that they all exist has been a big net positive for the movement at large. Um, and, 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 and this is taking the long view, right? If I think back to where we were 15 years ago when I was working at normal, working at SSDP, you know, I mentioned John Sperling early on as one of the big philanthropic supporters. Like there were basically four guys Right, four, and they were all guys, um, right? And fortunately, still mostly are. Um, it's a general problem across the industry at large. Um, but there were four guys that that funded probably ninety percent of the advocacy work on drug policy and marijuana policy. Right? It was John Spurling from the University of Phoenix, George Soros, uh, Peter Lewis from Progressive Insurance, and George Zimmer from Men's Warehouse. Um, but you know, back then, like all these organizations were fighting for the same pool of money, um, and now you have every one of these companies has lobbyists on Capitol Hill. They've got lobbyists in state legislatures. They've, you know, they're, they're contributing to organizations like the National Cannabis Industry Association, the Roundtable, the U.S. You know, US Cannabis Association. Um, you know, there's there's, there's you know, a, v- a whole variety of, of lobbying organizations working on this issue on the Hill, none of which were there before any of this started. So e- even if the companies themselves don't necessarily have you know, pure motives at heart, they're still there pushing for the same policy goals that we've been working on for a long time the fight now is over what those details look like uh, right and do they care enough about things like social equity and including the the you know the, the the populations that have been most disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs in these emerging industries right are they pushing for uh, markets that are overly limited and and sort of oligopolistic as opposed to you know more open um, and available to small businesses like those are the fights that we're having now it's no longer a fight yeah home grow right (laughs) things like home but it's not a fight over should cannabis be legal or not we're all rowing in the same direction there um and uh, you know i will say over the last few years i've seen a shift in the behavior of some of these larger companies some of the larger msos i think out of necessity right because because we're moving to a point now where legalization is happening at the state legislature level and it's happening in states that are very diverse with strong you know legislative black caucuses and latino caucuses that are not going to do this without strong social equity provisions in their laws These companies have to support these things. And so you've seen these companies, I think, whether it's for pure reasons or more likely for their own self-interest, start social equity incubator programs and social equity grant programs um, and the kinds of things. In some cases, in places like New York, it's required of them. Um, So look, I absolutely have issues with the way that many companies in the space have gone about their advocacy work. um, But on the whole, and, and again this comes from me having done this for so long and recognizing where we came from we are in such a better position today than we've ever been because we have so many people who are financially incentivized uh, to to see to, to, to see the end of prohibition. And that on the whole is a, is a good thing.
1: You talked in the uh, the podcast last week about, um, you know, the the early market folks, you know, you, Steve D'Angelo, Troy Dayton, um, you know, uh, who are the founders of ARCU, which really was the first um, incubator um, for for cannabis companies and for entrepreneurs, Um, you know. how do you and and i think you and ben had talked about you know it seemed or or ben had thought it was was initially weird like what you know why are they why are they going from this movement to to like you know working to raise money um but that very much was part of the movement to try to make it um into something that is a thriving marketplace that's legal that's regulated that's making money um how do you feel about uh, about them you know where they are now um, as a com- when it comes to advocacy, but when it also comes to business and to investing?
3: You know, uh, it, it's been good. It's been, so on one hand, it's been nice to see folks like Steve and Troy, right? Build their companies to a point where they could have an exit, um, right? And, and, and those guys both did, right? Arcview sold to a bigger firm. Um, Harborside has gone public and is now being run by, you know, sort of corporate masters, let's call it. Um, it- Same people, by the way. Yes, same people. Yes, (laughs) that's right. Um, So I'm glad that they were able to have their exits, even if, you know, and I'm not going to speak for either of them, but, you know, I'm sure that there are some things that they're not thrilled about the way things ended. Um, Probably Steve at Harborside, uh, you know, uh, maybe more than Troy at at Arcview. Um, But, you know, they were able to have an exit. They were able to do well with what they started. And I know that folks like those, Right. And that would put, you know, somebody like, you know, Debbie Goldsberry, you know, who who was one of the founders of Berkeley Patients Group, went on to start, you know, Magnolia Wellness and others. They're going to take what they earn and what they make out of this, and they're going to help pay it forward. Right. Because they're, you know, those of us who've been around from the beginning, right, we're activists first. And we've you, you never really shake that mindset because you don't you can never forget how bad things really were before the industry um, and before all of this. and so I know that you know folks folks like us, we're gonna do what we can to help the next generation of entrepreneurs to help make sure that the next round of laws you know look better than the first round of laws. Um, and so I'm sure there's you know for all of us, there's some bittersweet involved in all of this. Um, but the more of those early pioneers, uh, that that get their exits or that do well in this in this industry. I think it is gonna be better for the issue as a whole because they're gonna do a lot better with whatever they get out of this than the people that followed them and got into this just for financial reasons. I want to
4: stick on on advocacy because you know you worked with Normal and SSDP. You're you're still part of the NCIA. But you know what's the role that these organizations are going to be playing going forward? At like you just mentioned, you know, advocating for for new laws and better laws. There, you know how how are they contributing right now to that?
3: Yeah. So I think it's it's different depending on the organization. Um, but you know, interestingly, the the fact that the that the issue has gotten so much larger that the industry exists, that there's more funding in general um, for these issues, I think has in some ways allowed the, let's call them legacy advocacy organizations, right, the groups that I came out of, to kind of find their lanes in a way that we weren't able to do 15 years ago when we were all kind of competing for the same pool of money and competing to, you know, pass the same kind of laws. And so it's been interesting to watch that, right? Like MPP is now in a position where, you know, they – You know, they really have kind of established themselves as the suit and tie lobbying organization that's going to write ballot initiatives and, you know, coordinate with lobbyists and state legislatures to get new legalization laws passed Right, the Drug Policy Alliance does that to a degree as well. But, you know, they tend to be the, the bigger tent, uh, drug policy group. I think DPA has done a really nice job of pivoting to focus more on racial justice, um, right. And in, in the wake of Ethan Adelman leaving, um, right. Who, I mean, he, you know, and, and I, I would plug Ethan's podcast is really awesome. If those of you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. I mean, there's, there's like nobody that I, that I like listening to talk about drugs and drug policy more than Ethan Adelman. It's just great to have his voice back on the scene. Um, so would, would recommend that if, if you get a chance. Um, But, you know, and then I look at an organization like Normal, you know, I think back to when when I was at Normal, we always kind of felt like we were competing with MPP and MPP was much smaller at the time, right? Normal was smaller at the time. Um, And now I think Normal has really found it's not only its lane, but its voice in really being the organization that represents the interests of the consumers. Um, And I think, you know, even if we legalize federally and we, you know, we, we quote unquote win. I actually think there's probably a role for normal in a post-prohibition world more than probably any of the other advocacy organizations because there's always going to be a need to advocate for the interests of consumers, right? To push for things like home grow, to push for better pricing, to push for more pricing, more diverse license, licenses, um, right? To, to, to make sure that the industry is a better industry that better serves the interests of the consumer base. Um, and that's and it's really Normal going back to its roots, right? Normal was founded in 1970 as a consumer advocacy organization, um, uh, right? In, in the vein of, of the you know the, the Ralph Nader movement to the late 60s. Like that was Keith Strop's, uh motivation in starting Normal in the very beginning. And I think normal's kind of come back around and found its roots and is doing a really good job there and being the voice of the consumer. And I think an organization like SSDP you know, always has a unique role to, role to play because it's the student wing of the of the reform movement um, and you know cannabis is not legal everywhere yet we're still got to win in a lot more states, and you need ground troops to do that. You need people who can knock on doors, who can phone bank, um, right? And and SSDP is working on broader issues beyond cannabis. And I think you know young people are always well positioned to push the envelope, um, right? And to push a little bit further, and you know they're going to be on the front lines of ending the war on drugs in general, on psychedelic policy, um, and you know SSDP on its you know it, with its with its new you know new new executive director Jason expertise, I think has a a sort of a newfound uh, commitment to racial justice and racial equity. um, And they get to push the envelope in that way. And that's great, right? This generation of students, um, you know, they they push things further than my generation of students did. And that's what they're supposed to do. um, And that's going to make some people uncomfortable. And I think that's awesome.
2: At some point, we can have a conversation about the actual efficacy of students and what they what of what they say versus what they actually do <laughs> and how they actually vote. Um, because while I believe that they could have an impact, they
3: don't. I would I would I would uh, absolutely disagree with you on that.
1: Wow. And, and I, I,
4: I understand what you're yeah. yeah. No, no, no. no. Dang. I,
2: I was a student and I and I did march like I went in, and like, I'm old. Like I've, I marched against the very first war in Iraq. I went to DC, I carried a sign, I yelled and screamed, and then I went home and I didn't have the money to give. And while I am somebody who has never missed an election, um, realistically, students don't vote, they don't donate, they don't actually do. They t- they, and it's every, just not, every election, it's just, it, it is look, true. You're, you're right on
3: the voting. You're absolutely right. I mean, the numbers are the numbers, right? Young people just in every generation, they, they don't, they don't vote. They start voting as they get older. But in terms of being the ground troops, they absolutely have an impact. And I would point to, I would point to Maine's ballot initiative in 2016, just as one example, right? Maine, Maine passed legalization by a margin of something like 14,000 votes ssdp students set up in phone banks all around the country reached more voters in maine through phone banking than the margin of victory of that campaign right so you're right in terms of you're you're not going to have you're not going to have the giant young voter turnout that you need to 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 swing an election but those that are activated have the time they have the motivation they knock on doors they make phone calls and those things make a difference Right. And and you can and, and they, they have more time than most of us do to do those things. So we can we can set up phone banks where you've got students in 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 Flint, Michigan, calling voters in 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 Portland, Maine or in, in Worcester, Massachusetts or other places around the country that are bringing up those that are that are actually turning people out to vote at a, at a pretty high level. And that like that makes the difference in Maine. It may have made all the difference between winning
2: or losing that ballot initiative. I'm not familiar enough with that. With, with how that played out, um, so I'm, I can't argue with you. What I would ask though is, which of the state elected officials put their heft behind the ballot initiative, whether it was the state Senate president or the speaker of the assembly, and what role did they play in actually turning out their constituents? And if you look at the actual votes, and again, I don't know the numbers and I'm not familiar enough, but I know enough about local politics to know that it's the council members, the state assembly members and the state senators who actually turn out people. Yeah, but in, in most in of these, I mean, in numbers. most of these
3: states, like uh, uh, up through 2016, almost all those state elected officials were opposed to the initiative. I mean, I look at what happened in, in in Colorado, in particular, in 2012, where you know SSDP turned out in force, doing doing door knocking, doing phone banking, right? All of the all of those grassroots things that you need to do for turnout. The governor opposed it. Both senators opposed it. Uh, the former go- former governors opposed. It. I mean, literally every elected official of note in Colorado and in Washington, I should say, in that same year, all opposed this. And we won it in spite of them because of the work, not just of SSTP, obviously, but the work, you know, the folks of Vicente um, and and Safer in Colorado and the ACLU in Washington and all this grassroots advocacy and turnout. Right. They did that in spite of opposition from the entire political establishment. And it was very similar in Maine. You had a few legislators in Maine that supported it. The governor was vehemently opposed at the time, right? The the senators were vehemently opposed at the time. Um, You needed those activists to make sure that this thing got done and the students play a real role in that.
2: I love being proved wrong. Like I, I'm not I don't have to be right. I'm totally cool with being proved wrong and Chris Crane, everybody. Look, Chris Crane. I,
3: I I look I look forward to proving you wrong on a more regular basis going forward here.
1: <laughs> I feel like Lewis, your kid is gonna prove you wrong. He's heading to college. Like he's gonna be the one oh my that, God, that's are you gonna kidding prove me? you wrong there. I'll,
2: it's almost every day that Elijah proves me wrong. I'm told, and I'm I'm completely okay with it. You know, I it's think
1: he'll join SSDP? Uh
2: not a shot. He will join <laughs> No, there's no shot he will be joining SSDP. If it has something to do with crypto, he'll be in. Um, so you've been in the, 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 the industry your whole career. But let's just look back at like the last 10 or 11 years, right? Because you started Forefront um, officially in 11. Um, if you look back at your time with Forefront and, and since, what is the thing that you are most proud of what you have done and what is the thing that's most surprised you about how the industry has evolved?
3: Ooh. Um, so just,
2: is that another good question? It's a great question. Um, (laughs) it's
3: hard to pick sort of one thing I would say that I'm I'm most proud of in terms of my tenure at forefront. Um, I mean it, it might, but I, but I think it's not one sort of concrete thing, but it's for me at least the fact that I, I always kept my, tried to at least keep my activists and advocacy values at heart and keep that as a part of the fabric of the company. Um, Right. There were times where we could have been brought into, you know, campaigns to like stop home grow in a state that we were operating in. And we never did that. Um, Right. We always had people, on staff that came from the advocacy movement, right? We hired a, a lot of folks that came out of SSDP. You know, if there's one, I think if there's one thing that that sort of exemplifies this, it was the 2016 ballot initiative in Massachusetts. Um, you know, because I came out of the reform movement, I had gone to the folks at MPP who I knew were going to be running the ballot initiative in Massachusetts we were moving into a brand new office, uh, forefronts uh, for old office now in in downtown Boston, like right in the heart of downtown. And I knew I knew we had extra office space to grow into, so we we do, we made an in-kind donation of office space to the campaign. Um, so campaign headquarters was literally the corner office of my my office in downtown Boston, um, and you know allowed our staff to volunteer their time and spend time and work with the campaign staff on that. And at that time, we had a number of folks in that Boston office that were veterans of the movement, veterans of the campaign, right? It was myself Sam Tracy, who had been the the chair of the board of SSDP, uh, Eric Casey, who had been a chapter leader at SSDP, uh, and of course Shillie Title, um, who had had you know had had worked on the at that time had, had already been a, a, a not an, I don't know if she was an employee or a volunteer on the sixty four campaign in Colorado, so a direct ca- a direct legalization campaign experience and went on to become uh, you know a commissioner um, in the on the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. All of us were working out of the same small office in uh, in Massachusetts. And we were able to spend, you know, a good amount of our time helping that campaign and, uh, and, and ultimately, you know, it was successful. Uh, it was a weird election night. Uh, we won and then so did Trump. So it was a, it was a very odd, uh, celebration, but, um, but it, you know, but I, you know, I don't know of a lot of companies that would have dove that deep into, Uh, you know, into a campaign like that and directly into advocacy, right? I mean, you you can hire, you can donate, a a lot of companies will donate money, right? They may hire a lobbyist, but to be able to tell a staff like that, who had that experience, like, hey, use your experience to help this campaign team who were a great team, but they didn't come from cannabis, right? They came from Massachusetts politics, and, you know, and volunteer your time. And we, we created the space and the leeway for them to do that. I was really proud of that. And I think, you know, our team got a lot out of it. We all came away from it feeling more dedicated to the issue and to the company. Um, and it was really holding that ethos, you know, throughout everything that we did it, through, you know, my tenure at the company that I think I'm, I'm most proud of, um, in terms of what surprised me the most, that's really hard. Um, you know, I, I, it, it, it just yeah, I it's hard to put my finger on one thing, right? The the fact that we are where we are today. If I look back ten years ago, I'm not sure I would have said we'd have you know a a you know, few dozen publicly traded companies, right, with stock being. You know, stock being traded obviously not on the Nasdaq or the Dow, But, right, but stock being traded in the U.S. Um, with you know cannabis companies on like Jim Cramer's show and you know being talked about on CNBC and um, and just the the fact that the issue that,
2: that's us, by the way, we do that.
3: You do that. You got me on CNBC um, uh, uh, when we when when we when we legalize here in, in Illinois. Um, but you know the the fact that the fact that this has become so mainstream in such a short amount of time. Uh, Right. And I don't mean over the last 10 years, but like it was really 2012 when Colorado passed legalization, the conversation changed so quickly. And then by the time you get to 2016, it's kind of accepted as legalization is going to happen. Right. It's almost accepted as inevitable. And it's talked about in the media, among companies, right, in such a different way than it was just a few years earlier. and. I guess I would have expected it to have been more of an evolution. And instead it almost feels kind of like what happened with the gay marriage issue, um, where, you know, it went from, you know, one year there were, you know, in 2004, right. There were, you know, there were, the Bush campaign was running ballot initiatives to ban gay, you know, best counts to constitutional amendments around the country to ban gay marriage as a way to, you know, turn out conservative voters to, you know, just a few years later, it's a it's 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 a it's an issue that's basically won in the eyes of, of voters, right? And I think we saw a similar very quick shift in consciousness on cannabis. Um, and I think the industry has had a lot to do with that. But it was definitely it was faster and, and, and less of an evolution than I would have expected.
1: Well, and now it's an essential service. Right, right, right. I mean, Absolutely. We saw that and like, like, who would have thought that would have happened? That was, I think, surprising to Absolutely. everybody. Absolutely.
3: We went from being prohibited to being essential <laughs> in like a matter of months. Yeah.
2: Yes. Um, so we are recording this on um, Friday, July 30th. Um, so I don't know when you're listening to it, but today, um, some news came out of Forefront. Uh, you want to talk about that?
3: Sure. Um, so we announced officially today that my my tenure um, at forefront is is officially over. Um, I've stepped down as president of the company um, after ten and a half years. Um, it's time. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a happy and 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 cordial uh, transition. Um, you know, largely of my own you know, my own decision. It's I've never spent eleven years anywhere, um, and uh, you know, and 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 it's also recognition that. You know, with businesses, you know, you always hear that the people that 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 get you there are not usually the people that take you to the next level, and and I've seen that firsthand, right? I mean, the skills that I have, I, you know, I like to think played a large role in getting us to where we are today. Um, but you know, now we're about improving operational efficiency and you know, hitting our operational metrics, and that's not really what I do, and uh, and and it's just it's it's a recognition that it's it's the right time for me personally and the right time for the company for me to be making this transition. I will be staying on in a high level, part-time consulting role, uh, sort of being a liaison to the company for what's going on federally, doing a little bit of business development, um, you know, sort of introductions at the high level. Um, but uh, but my, my, my days as a full-time uh, a team member executive at Forefront are officially over today. Um, and I'm really excited uh, about sort of what comes next,
2: both for me and for Forefront. Speaking, um, I. I have an idea. Are you open to an idea?
3: I, I am open to an idea, yes. I'm always open to want ideas. Want a job? Because um, we're hiring. Do I want to jo- With you? Yeah, with us. I get, I get to work with Ann and Nick, right? Not just you?
2: Uh, you, you get to work with Ann and Nick, not me.
3: Uh, all right. You're sold. <laughs> <Yes>. Deal. <laughs> awesome.
2: Actually, yes. in all seriousness, all right. um, one of the reasons why we are recording today is to let everybody know that Chris actually is taking a job with KCSA. Um, we've worked together for four years, I think. Um, and like five, it, yeah. It, wow. Um, and not only have we become friends, um, the, the level of respect that we have developed for you um, is you know unparalleled. Um, and we realize that your unique ability to understand what is happening um, at the advocacy level, at the local level, at the the national level, um, and uh, and also the integration as having been the president of a billion dollar publicly traded cannabis company, gives our clients now you know a unique resource, um, and you know we just kind of love you, so we're really excited to have you join the team.
3: That's awesome. I, it's the feeling is mutual, um, right? I wouldn't. I would not be. I would not be doing this if I didn't have like the utmost respect and admiration for you guys and the, the team you've assembled there. Um, right. I mean, I know I'm going to have plenty of opportunities post forefront and uh, I, you know, I only want to be working with people I really like working with, with good people who are doing good things and who care about this issue. All right. Not just about the business, of course, the business, right. We're, you know, it's this, that that's what this is about, but, but who, you know, who care about the plant and the, and the issue at whole. And, and I've, you know, I've seen, I've seen that from you guys throughout our relationship and really excited to do my part to help, uh, you know, help grow, grow the company.
2: And and one of the, the cool things that um, people who are listening to this may not know is Shay, who is our producer, is our producer because of Chris. Um, that's right. We- it's a hundred percent. You know, um, when we launched the podcast, um, Ann and I did it with another production company, and they helped. They helped us get to to a certain point, right? Operational efficiencies and as such. And when we needed to go to the next level, we turned to you, and you said you have to work with Shay. And uh, I hold you accountable for that to this day. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, um, you're staying in Chicago. I am staying um, in Chicago. You're yep. Be, yep. You are, uh, helping us launch KCSA Chicago. Um, That's right. The way that Nick, who is in Phoenix, is KCSA Phoenix. And Ann, who is in Los Angeles, is KCSA Los Angeles. And I am not KCSA Short Hills, New Jersey. Um, <laughs> I am still <laughs> KCSA New York. Um... And you're going to help us create great content. You're going to be consulting for our clients. And you're going to help us think about where we should be going in the cannabis and the psychedelics industry as well. Because we know that you have, um, you know, deep interest and affiliation with, with with that space. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And we're also going to be in Vegas, Delta Variant hopefully not going to be an issue, but if you guys are in Vegas for MJ biz in October, hit us up. Um, we'd love to meet you in person with a mask
0: or whatever (laughs) we're doing
1: then. (laughs) Um, but I'm, I'm so excited. I, I, I couldn't be happier to have you on, um, on our team, Chris. So
4: Yay. All right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think, I think we're, we we, all can, can echo that. I know whenever anybody asks me like, where's, where do you get all your information with, with cannabis? Who's, who, who should I be, you know, listening to and, you know, reading it's, it's, I always point to your Forbes column, point to the, the stuff that you are doing with, uh, MJ today. Um, so I know I'm really excited about, about everything that we're going to be going forward with and, you know, not only having you part of the team, having you part of the podcast as well. Uh, you guys, you yes. guys are awesome.
3: This is going to be, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it.
2: Cool.
1: We love you too, Lewis.
2: No, I'm just yeah, kidding. I was, I was totally kidding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we got I, lots of emotion. No one can see us, but we got lots of emotion from Lewis on the, on the who's your who's your go-to no, no, for toli- cannabis uh, A, a thousand
3: percent kidding. A thousand percent kidding. <laughs> no. Chris no. is my go-to. You, get, you, got, you guys will get grizzled on me
2: too after a while. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, man. Never. And, and I just have to say, it's almost four o'clock, and the Mets still haven't made a freaking trade. <laughs> oh God! This is yeah. Maybe the, that's
1: um, another KCSA podcast. Yeah, I
2: was say, in the wins future.
3: the Mets podcast. I, I was gonna say guys. that's our yeah. that's our next one. Yeah. For those who don't know, <laughs> Lewis and I are both gigantic New York Mets fans, and it is trade deadline day. Um, so, Uncle Steve, come through for us, man. We're here.
2: We're waiting. <laughs> yes. All right. And I think that's it.
3: On
1: that note.
2: On that note, let's leave
1: it there. Chris Crane, thank you so thank much. Thank you all. Welcome to the Thank family. You. I'm,
3: so, I'm so glad to be a part of it. This is going to be a lot of fun.
4: As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Lewis and myself or Chris, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush Underscore podcast, or you can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback, guest ideas. We've got a lot coming up, so um, we're open to new suggestions that will help inspire some new episodes. But um, make sure you subscribe to the Green Rush on your favorite podcatcher and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's one take, Shay. One take.